0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We're going to be in, going back to the book of James. Um, those of you who have been here on a regular basis, we're going through the book of James. We are now in chapter 5, so we'll look at verses 7 through 11 in just a second as you're flipping there. Also, you can turn to Mark. Have your finger in Mark 13. I want to read that before I read James. And I wanted to welcome any visitors that we have. Um, I know Bob did that earlier, but anybody here from King's Academy visiting? Can you raise your hand? Yippee! Come on, don't be a. There we go. I see it. I see that hand. We got a whole cheering squad over here. Awesome. Thanks for being here today. Okay. So we are going through the Book of James. We're we're nearing the finish line in this great little epistle by. James, who was actually the half-brother of Jesus, didn't believe in Jesus while Jesus was, uh, before he was crucified, but after he got crucified and then rose again from the dead, he made a special appearance, Jesus did, to his half-brother, younger brother James. And then James put his faith in his half-brother who was the God-man, Jesus as God. And James became a believer and then God raised him up to be actually one of the key leaders in the early church of Jerusalem that had literally thousands of Jewish believers early on and now a decade has gone by or so and James is hearing about all these Christians that are spread abroad and he's hearing different reports from all these churches outside of Palestine, mostly believing Jews and it's going on two decades now where Jesus died and ascended back into heaven and so these Christians are just in the routine, the mundane, grueling grind of the routine of life. And life is hard. Hey, that sounds like a good bumper sticker. Because that's just the reality of life. And that's what these people were experiencing, the realities of the hardships of life. Nobody has it easy. This week, uh, I just heard somebody saying they were telling an unbeliever that if they believed in Jesus and became a Christian, he'd have a wonderful plan for your life and your life would be pretty much peachy and rosy. And I'm thinking, don't lie to the person. Uh, Life's going to be hard whether you're a believer or not a believer because uh, we live in a fallen world. And so James is addressing believers who are having some trials in life as now two decades are under their belt. of their, They've been waiting on the return of Christ that they thought was going to come more quickly than it had up to this point. And so now they're faced with the trials of life. Many different trials. Trials from without. Trials from within. Trials with their own sin. Trials from living in a fallen world. Trials of living in close proximity with Other sinners rubbing your shoulders, and when sinners rub shoulders rather quickly, we get irritated with one another, don't we? And we're going to see that in this passage. So James now uh, is going to give a word of encouragement. Let's go ahead and follow along as I read James 5, 7 through 11. Those of you who weren't here last week, just to bring in the context, from verses 1 to 6, I believe, and most commentators, actually just about every commentator I read, uh, uh, agrees that James 5, 1 through 6 Uh, James takes a break from talking to his Christian audience and then he kind of rebukes unbelievers in the world and in the community who are interfacing with the believers he's been talking to and he's giving them a resounding rebuke as unbelievers for mistreating Christians, for persecuting them and subjecting them to ungodliness. And so verses 1-6 through is a rebuke to unbelievers. And it, it is scathing. Condemns them. And now he's going to transition back. Okay, got that out of my system, James says. And now he's going to get back to the believers. Fellow Christians, starting at verse 7 through 11, to giving them some encouraging words to, to hang in there. And so he says to these believers, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, Until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another in order that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge, the judge, is standing right at the door. As an example, Brothers of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings and that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Be patient. Notice in verse 7, be patient. The beginning. Then at the end of verse 7, patient. Verse 8, beginning, be patient. Verse 10, middle of the verse. Patience. Verse 11, endured. Endure. Endured and endurance are synonyms for patience. This passage is about being patient. Enduring. Hanging in there. Persevering. Then look at um, the end of verse 8. For the coming... Of the Lord is at hand the coming of the Lord is at hand and then in verse 9 the judge is at the door so a couple two three times he refers to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in this passage coupled with being patient so one of the motives for the Christian to be patient in this life is in light of Jesus's coming which is sure which is certain which is a motive for living for the next day, persevering hardships in life. Now flip back to Mark chapter 13. And I want to read this kind of as background and foundation for verses 7 through 11 that we're going to look at in James 5. In this passage in Mark 13, Jesus is about to be crucified. And he's talking. it's one of His last public teaching opportunities there in Jerusalem. And some special time of teaching with His disciples. And He's talking about His return to earth. He's going to die. He's going to ascend. He's going to go to heaven. And at some point, he's going to come back again. Well, when is that going to be? Well, through the year for 2,000 years, every once in a while, people in the Christian community have tried to tell us when that will be. They know a secret we have never been able to figure out. They figured out when Jesus is going to return. And the most recent well-known example was Harold Camping, who told us, I think it was last May 22nd, Jesus was going to return, right? Big billboards all across America, and Jesus never came. Surprise, surprise. But anyway... Look at verse thirty two. Well, he didn't come on May twenty second, a year ago. And so here's what Jesus says about his own return, verse thirty two of Mark thirteen. But on that day, the day when Jesus returns, to culminate history, but on that day, oh, but of that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven. Get this, nor the Son, or the other passage, nor the Son of Man. So at this time before Jesus' death, Jesus did not even know in His human flesh, when He was going to return. Does Jesus know when He's going to return now? Absolutely. Part of the Incarnation, when Jesus came down here as the God-man, He humbled Himself. He emptied Himself of His own rightful volition to choose to know everything that He could know as God, and He decided to rather be 100% obedient to the Father and whatever the Father would reveal to Him from heaven as he lived his 33 years on earth and he was only he would be he was content with only knowing what the father would reveal him even though before Jesus became a man he knew everything as god and then after he uh, died rose again from the heaven rose again and was resurrected in glory he interacted with peter and peter affirmed that Jesus knew everything lord you know all things and then we see the resurrected glorified Jesus Christ now in heaven in revelation And Jesus says, I know, I know, I know. He is now fully omniscient. Again, he never lost his omniscience, but now he has returned to glory with his Father that he had before the foundation of the world, according to John 17. And so now today, there is no question, Jesus knows when he will return. But he didn't in his incarnation. And that's what he's talking about here. Out of humility. So that he could just trust the Father step by step, breath by breath. But of that day at this time or no one knows, not even the Son of Man in His incarnation, but the Father alone. Verse 33. Take heed. Keep on the alert. And this is for Christians. Jesus is saying, take heed, keep on the alert. Be alert until I return again. Wake up, pay attention, be ready. Take heed. Keep on the alert. Look through this passage how many times He says, keep on the alert. Be alert. For you do not know what the appointed time is of Christ's return. It is like a man away on a journey upon leaving, Jesus is the man. He leaves on a journey. He goes back to heaven. He'll come back again someday. And so in the meantime, we need to wait for Jesus' return. And while we are waiting for Jesus as believers, we need to be faithful stewards of what He's given us to do now. Occupy, says the Gospel. That means be a busy, faithful steward of what God wants us to do while He's away. But at the same time, we need to be alert and be ready. Because we don't know how long He will be gone. Interesting, Matthew 24, Jesus said a long journey, a long time. Wow, he kind of gave a hint there in Matthew 24. Mark doesn't say long, but uh, Matthew did. And so Jesus is going to go away on a journey and upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, the apostles and the church, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Verse 35, therefore, be on the alert, be ready, be looking up. Live in light of Christ's return, for you do not know when the Master of the house is coming. We don't know when Jesus will return, but it's certain He is returning. Whether in the evening, at midnight, at cock crowing, that's like 3 in the morning, or early in the morning, 6 o'clock. Verse 36, lest He comes suddenly and find you asleep, unprepared, not ready. That would be bad. Verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Christian, be ready For Jesus's return live in light of his return that's one of the greatest motivations for a Christian to endure the hardships of this life and that's exactly what James is telling us in James 5 so let's go there so these Christians in James 5 they got some problems within and without Uh, some of the problems are their fault and James has already rebuked most of those Quit being showing partiality quit treating people uh, in a prejudiced manner Uh, Quit bickering with each other. Quit slandering each other. Quit talking about each other behind each other's back. I mean, there's just a lot of commands and he's just setting them straight because they know. And now he's given some comfort, which he does throughout. And this is a very comforting passage. He wants to comfort these people. They are having hardships. They're being persecuted. They're just suffering from living in a fallen world. It's taken longer than they anticipated for Jesus to return. So hence his theme to remind them to be patient. So with that foundation, let's go to James five, seven through eleven, and look at these three points we've laid out, looking at point number one, which is seven and eight. And I just titled this Life's Hard. Life is hard. Wait on God. Life is hard. Be patient. And it's in this passage it's being patient for something very specific. It is being patient for Christ's return, the culmination of world history. Anybody been a Christian for twenty years or more? Yeah. When was the question that I have too, and so here's a challenge for me. You can drop in on me challenging myself. When was the last time you thought about the second coming of Christ and when was the last time you really got excited about it and thought that it could happen during your lifetime and you've lived in light of the second coming of Christ? I have to confess, I'm getting kind of cold and stale on that compared to when I first became a Christian. And reading it for the first time, wow, this is awesome. Jesus died, He rose again, and He's he's in heaven, and He's going to return literally to earth. That is going to be awesome. And so as a new believer, it was easy to think, man, he's going to, He could return today. He could return tomorrow, next week. And then the years go by, and wow, he, he still hasn't returned. So is He not being true to His promise? Is this just pie in the sky? Are we not supposed to take this literally? This is just figurative? And that's what a lot of people do with the book of Revelation. They totally turn it... Figurative, where it says in Revelation 19 that Jesus is returning on the white horse in majesty and glory and is a warrior and he literally lands in Jerusalem and he takes over control of the entire planet earth and subjects all things under his command with his saints in glory. Man, I want to be a part of that because the saints are behind him riding in the sky on their white horses. I want my flying white horse! And then it doesn't happen and years go by and decades go by and then, oh, maybe we're just supposed to take this allegorical and maybe this actually, actually it already happened 2,000 years ago and the white horse and Jesus on it, that's not really Jesus, that was the Roman army that came in and sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD and so that event already happened, so some people try to tell us. It's like, oh, bummer, I was taking the Bible at face value. I was getting excited there. So there's a lot of things that challenge us as time goes by and we can get weary and tired, right? And lose our enthusiasm and zeal for the second coming. And so James, he's stirring these people up. You can't forget about the coming of Christ. He doesn't uh, elaborate on the details of the coming of Christ. He only just two short statements about it because he knew they understood the teaching about Jesus Christ's return. It was a basic doctrine. The entire Christian church at that time, they knew about it. It was foundational. It was a priority that was supposed to dominate their thinking and be a very paradigm by which they view the world reality and the afterlife. And as a result, the things that we do in this life, we do everything in light of the future. We do everything in light of the future. That's part of the Christian worldview, which is totally contrary to the worldview of the world who are living for the here and now. It is not uncommon for unbelievers. If you were to ask them, What's in the afterlife? Well, I don't know. Or what's in the next life? Well, nothing. It's just today. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, and then nothing. They aren't living in light of Christ's return. Not so for the Christian. So James is reminding us, and that's point one, be patient, Christian, be patient in light of God's parousia. Whoa, that's a big word. Is that Latin? Absolutely not. That is Greek. That's right out of the Bible. I did not make that up. And it was a P word and I needed another P word. So I put it in there. But literally, it's what it says. Verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren. Patient, which is the theme of this passage. Uh, that word is used in the New Testament of God's very character. He is, you know what that means? Long fused. The opposite is someone with a short temper who explodes. Boom. Be Long fused. And it can be applied towards circumstances or obnoxious people, but be long fused. It's a very character of God that we are supposed to assimilate and reflect if we know Jesus Christ. Jesus was patient. He was long fused. You're a Christian. I am a Christian. We're supposed to be like Christ and have a long fused with difficult circumstances and with difficult people. Sometimes people aren't difficult. It's just we mentally think that the wrong way. We are thinking wrong thoughts. And we foist those wrong thoughts and accuse other people of being wrong. And they are the problem in our situations. And James is going to address that in verse 9. But anyway, be long-fused. Be patient. Hang in there. Wait on the Lord. So it's not just be patient for patience sake. The motive behind it uh, is the coming of the Lord in light of Christ's return. So he says, be patient, therefore, brethren. By the way, the word brethren, key... I underline it in my Bible, verse 7. Brethren. And then look at verse 9. Brethren. Do not complain. Brethren. And then look at verse 10. As an example, brethren. Verse 12. But above all, brethren. Literally, brothers and sisters in the Lord. That is James' affectionate term. He uses strategically all throughout the book of James as he is addressing fellow believers. That's, that would be a legitimate translation. Fellow believers. Brothers and sisters in the Lord. Be patient, therefore, fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. He is... Identifying with them. Life is hard for James, too. And it's kind of interesting this term, brethren, is not to be found in verses 1 through 6 in James 5, because he's not talking to believers. Go through the book of James and trace this term brethren, 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 brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, fellow Christians. That's his audience. He's identifying with them. This is very pastoral. This is very encouraging. I'm just one of you. I'm not super pastor, super apostle, super James. He was a sinner. He had feet of clay. He messed up. He needed God just as much as anybody else. So he's identifying on their level. Be patient, therefore. Be long-suffering. Hang in there, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Okay, and the coming of the Lord there. Actually, that word coming, because there are a few times in the New Testament where that exact same English word come or coming is used of when Jesus Christ will return. But unfortunately, in some English translations, they translate different Greek words in the exact same way. And here's one of those instances. I want to give you the literal breakdown of this word right here, parousia. That the, the Greek word is Perusia. Perusia is a compound word made up of just two Greek words. Para, which is just a preposition. It means alongside of. Uzias, from the verb amy, or to be. To be alongside of. To be alongside of. To be alongside of someone is to have your presence near them. This is a sign of intimacy. She's my wife, I can do that. Um, that is literally what it means. To be alongside someone is the promise of your physical, personal presence in an intimate manner with that person in relationship. That is the word parousia here. He uses it a couple times in this passage. Parousia. English. Some of the English translators trying to translate it. Instead of the presence... As the coming. They translate it as coming. Even though there's a different verb that literally means coming. The coming of Christ. This is A better translation is the presence. It's more personal. The emphasis is not on the act of Jesus. The action of Him is returning. This is emphasizing the result of His return. He is present in our midst as He promised He would be. Isn't that exciting? The presence of the Lord. That's how they actually should translate it. Be patient in this life that is difficult with trials and hardships. Brothers, fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, until the presence of Lord Jesus Christ Himself is in your midst, which is sure to come. Because we live in light of His coming. Now go to John 14, 3, because I want to show you another word translated as come or coming, referring to the return of Jesus Christ, that is just simply the basic Greek verb meaning to Come. And in the context is to come back. Jesus is coming from heaven to earth. And that's John 14, verses 1-3. through 3. Famous passage. Jesus is talking just before His death to His eleven apostles. And He says, Don't be troubled. Believe God. Believe also in Me In My Father's house up in heaven. There's many mansions or dwelling places. And if I, if it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going to go up there and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you up in heaven, here it is, I will come again. There it is. There's the coming of Christ. I will come again. Come there. Erkomai. It just means to come back. Literally. It's the action of Jesus coming. Or returning. By the way, there is no Greek word for returning in the New Testament used in reference to Jesus' coming back. It's always just His coming. Not His return. His coming. And that's significant because the word coming, it's He's actually en route and on the way. I am coming. As opposed to, I will come or some, I will return. I am coming. He's already the anticipation, the imminence that comes with that. Wow, that could be at any moment. But that's just, a, it is a different verb in John 14, 3, referring to the same event, but a different point of emphasis. That's just the fact that He is going to return at some point. This beautiful word in James 5, the very presence of Christ Himself is coming to be with His people. That's, that's God's ultimate goal. That is the ultimate plan of God in human history, by the way. It's for the God of the universe and the Creator of the universe to come down and dwell with His people in deep, intimate, personal fellowship. That is God's master plan. Isn't that awesome? Allah of Islam does not plan to do that. He never made that promise to His people. And that's true of any false religion. They don't have this view. Wow, I can dwell... Intimately with the Creator, God, Lord, and Master of the universe. That is amazing. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And it's just assumed to be true. It's going to happen. It is guaranteed. Behold. And now he's going to give an illustration. And he relates it to a situation in our life that was just common to everybody. 2,000 years ago in Palestine, most of the people that worked were worked on a farm or related to working on a farm of some sort. And that's, that's just how you survived and lived. The wheat fields and whatever else. Everybody had a part in it. So it's a universal metaphor or illustration he's using that everybody can relate to. Everybody was dependent upon the survival of food that came from the wheat field, from the farmer, basic food. And there are related uh, components here. And he says, behold, be patient just like the farmer. The farmer has to be patient. The, the farmer waits. There's another word for patient. Wait, wait, wait. And you're waiting for something good. You're waiting for something precious. We are waiting for the precious coming of the presence of Jesus Christ. The farmer waits for the precious food that he's invested so much time and energy into. Preparing the field with all the labor that it took. And planting the seed and paying for the seed that cost money. And then protecting the field. And watering the field. And then this time component of waiting months and months and months. And still, you are at the mercy of the providence and grace of God. Because there are factors involved that you cannot control as a farmer. Like rain and locusts and sun and the produce itself. You are totally dependent on God as a farmer in faith that the Creator is going to be gracious. Yet the farmer doesn't bat an eyelash and he trusts God is merciful, God is good, God is gracious. He rains down good on the just and the unjust. And so the farmer waits. So that's a practical, temporal illustration of how we are supposed to live the Christian life. We need to wait and be patient, wait and be patient, wait and be patient. I remember just out of, when I got out of seminary, I had some problems. And my pastor was John MacArthur at the time, or I called him Johnny Mac. But anyway... And I remember uh, just pulling on his pant leg one time and just hardships in my life and all my problems. and So I told him and he said, just wait and be patient. That was it. That was the end of his counsel. <laughs> I thought, wow, that did not give me warm fuzzies. Actually, I don't think that really helped me. That didn't solve my 32 problems. But anyway, he was right. Wait and be patient. That's exactly what James says. Wait and be patient. Wait on the Lord. God is in control. Trust Him. Uh, How does the farmer wait? So I went into some of the details, and then it says that the farmer waits. He waits in trust in light of things that he can't control. He's being patient about it. What else is he being patient for? At the end of verse 7, until it gets the early and late rains. The early rain was in like October when he began. He needed that water uh, from the early rains for the soil to get uh, soft enough so he could till it up and prepare the soil. If you didn't get your rains in October, you couldn't till the soil and even prepare it, and then you're going to lose a crop for the entire season. And that happened at times with uh, droughts and those kind of things. So not only were we dependent upon God to provide early rains in October to prepare properly, then you grow in your crops, you need rain the entire time and water, and then you need especially those late rains, by the way, at the end of verse 7, which is around April over there in Palestine. And that was the water you needed to keep coming at the time of harvest so that your fruit wouldn't dry out before you could pick it. And this is all of God. God is in control of it, and yet farmers, uh, are examples. They are exemplary, actually, in in terms of being patient for things beyond their control, yet they put their hope in God. And in like manner, every single one of us, okay, so think about this week, don't say it out loud, did you have any hardships in your life this week? Uh, in your walk with God, your personal life, your family, your marriage, your siblings, your, uh, co-workers, your finances, your health. Yeah, we all did, didn't we? and we were frustrated, we were tried, and sometimes we just wring our hands and, God, I don't know if I can go on. I don't know if I can go on. James understands that. The Lord understands that, and that's why He's telling. He's trying to encourage us. Hang in there. Be patient. Verse 8, You too, in like manner, be patient. Strengthen. Your hearts. Yeah, we have to go to God and ask for his help, but here James makes it clear there there there's some onus on us as Christians. There are things that we need to do. We aren't to be pacifists. When he says, Be patient, be patient. That isn't passively sitting by, folding your hands, and just kind of hmm kumbaya and just think God's gonna do everything for you. A pacifist. No, we need to be active. These are active commands. This means to act with resolve. You know, be patient first and foremost is dealing with your attitude and your thought life think about that well I'm not a very patient person well then you need to deal with your thought life it is an attitude it's controlling your thought life it is controlling and take control of your perspective of your world view of implementing biblical truths from scripture into your mind and your frame of thinking that is active that is a command we are obligated to do it we can't be passive we can't make excuses that's what James is saying be patient be patient be patient and then he defines one of the components of being patient is well, what does that mean strengthen your hearts be resolved from within that's talking about your attitude and it's an attitude of assuming a role of courage courageous thinking courageous deliberate thinking in light of life's circumstances, thinking right, not sitting around moaning and groaning and whining and complaining and being passive and blaming it on everybody else and wanting everybody else to rescue and bail you out and feeling sorry and having a pity party. That's really what he's talking about. Do not do that. That's easy to do. That is human nature. Hence, all again, James hammering us with all these commands. He is compassionate. He is pastoral. He understands. And at the same time, there is obligation on us as Christians. We are dependent 100% on the grace of God and His mercy and His provision. And on the other hand, we are obligated to live this life in power of the Spirit, in light of the truth, in obedience to God. God is 100% responsible and I am also 100% responsible. How does that flesh out? How is that possible? I do not know. That is a divine mystery. I won't know till I get to heaven, only if God decides to reveal it to me. He doesn't reveal it to me, then fine. I'll have to be content for all of eternity, not knowing the answer to that question. And that's why Philippians 2 commands the Christian live or work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is a command for all of us Christians to do. Work out. So that doesn't mean earn your salvation. It means you are already saved, and now that you're saved, live the rest of your life until you die or until Jesus comes. Work out your salvation in fear before Almighty God and trembling. But the command and the onus is on us to do it. It is active. Take control of your life to the extent that God expects us to. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then in the next verse, says, knowing that it is God who is at work in you. So is it God or is it me? Yes. There's your answer. And so that's what you've got here in this beautiful passage. Be patient, be patient, be patient. Strengthen yourself. Don't do this. Do this. Well, I can't do it on my own. Well, I know you can't do it on your own. The Lord's going to help you. He's going to empower you. He's going to give you the proper knowledge. He's going to give you the Word of God. So you need to implement all of this into your lifestyle and your attitude of living. Be patient. Be patient. Be patient. Strengthen the inside how you think, your attitude, correct it if it's wrong. Strengthen your hearts. This is similar to what Paul said in Corinthians at the very end of the epistle where he made this command, short, terse, and to the point, act like men. That was a command for the men, by the way. Act like men. It's not quite saying don't be a sissy. It's be the man of God that God has enabled you to be in all that He has given you, all the the enablements He's given you, salvation, the indwelling Spirit of God, biblical truth, fellow believers, the pillar of the church, the hope in Christ and of His return. Therefore, in light of that, changing your thinking and making it biblical, act like men. And here we can do the same thing. We can be patient, be patient, be patient, strengthen our hearts, in light of everything that God has given us at our disposal, and one of the greatest motivations to press on is the, com- the presence of Jesus Christ that will be our reward. The presence of Jesus Christ until the presence of the Lord. And then at the end of verse 8, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Some translations say, be patient, hang in there, keep persevering, strengthen your hearts, don't give up, perseverance of the saints... Why? The coming of the Lord, the presence of the Lord is near, it is at hand, it is imminent. What does that mean, that it is at hand or near, as Peter says in his epistle, and John says in 1 John as well, the exact same phrase, Paul says it in Philippians chapter 4, uh, the Lord's coming is near. Well, I don't think it's just necessarily chronologically in terms of time, but it's one thing that definitely means that it is the next event on God's, calendar of human history there was things that had to happen in human history according to god's plan for him to fulfill his plan chronologically speaking actually there had to be uh the creation of adam and eve then there you know the 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 covenant with noah had to be made when it was made and then there was the tower of Babel that had to happen and then the promise to abraham had to happen and then the, the nation of israel had to grow and then moses had to come along and give the law and then god predicted to go down to egypt so that had to happen for 400 years and then out of that came the birth of the Messiah and he had to grow up for 30 years and then he had to do a three and a half year ministry and he had to die on the cross, rise again from the dead, send into heaven. And then after that, so God is fulfilling his plan. And so the next event on God's timetable in terms of the epics of world history is the coming of Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible can legitimately say it is at hand. It could happen at any moment. We don't know when the time will be. It could be another 2,000 years. It could be two days. It could be two hours. Literally. It's the next event on God's timetable. By the way, the word parousia in verse 7, the presence of the Lord in the New Testament, that 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 word and that concept was not introduced in the Old Testament. It is introduced for the first time in Matthew 24 when the apostles asked Jesus, tell us the time of your presence. And then Jesus accommodated their question and he answered two times he said i will tell you when the the, my presence will come and it is the end of the age so the parousia the coming of christ is jesus christ at the end of the age when he culminates all of world history when he's going to come down to earth and then he will reign for a thousand years on the earth that is the parousia and that's how it's reserved throughout the new testament there are other references to the coming of christ including the rapture well i don't believe in the rapture well are you a christian yes well it's in the bible so Where is it? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about the Raptura. That's the Latin translation of 1 Thessalonians 4. It's right in the Bible. Uh, it literally means to be snatched up, and that refers to a special coming of Christ. It's gonna happen. That's what Paul said. Jesus even referred to it in John 14, 2 and 3. The Rapture, 1 Corinthians 15. So the Rapture is in the Bible. That is also a coming of, and that's the special coming of Christ where he comes for his Believers. The parousia is in the end of the age when he comes to earth. The rapture is when he comes to get believers and takes them to heaven. How do we know that? Because that's what the Bible says. So the Christian lives in light of either one of those the parousia of Christ in his presence or the rapture, which is the next event for a Christian. And it can happen at any time. So we do need to do what Jesus said. We need to be patient. We need to be alert. We need to be ready. We need to be prepared. And that helps with enduring this very difficult life that is before us. Go on to point number two after point one, which was be patient in light of God's parousia. Uh, James says be patient in light of God's prohibition. A prohibition is a command to, that forbids us from doing something. Do not do this. Well, I want to hear Bible teaching that just encourages me and doesn't tell me what to do. I want to hear Bible teaching that doesn't tell me what I shouldn't do. Well, then don't study the book of James because it's got commands all over the place. It's, you can't avoid it. Just all, and all scriptures is God-breathed. We need to hear this. This is healthy. But there's a prohibition. There's things we should be doing and shouldn't be doing. The Apostle Paul, Romans 7, was disgusted with himself. I do things that I know I shouldn't do because I'm a sinner. And there are things that I know I should be doing that I don't do, O wretched man, that I am. That's just part of the Christian life. And so, James, uh, tells them, okay, you guys are struggling in this life. Life is hard. I understand that. It's hard for a lot of reasons. You need to be patient. You need to have a long fuse. You need to look to the Lord and His return because it's guaranteed it's going to happen. And another reason you need to be patient and wait on the Lord is in light of this prohibition of having the wrong attitude. What is it in verse 9? He says, do not complain. Do not complain. I mean, think about it. I know this is true with me. That when you get tired or when you're undergoing persecution or just when you're undergoing hardships and hard trials in life and difficult situations, uh, your patience starts to wear thin as a human, as a finite person, as a sinner and your fuse gets shorter and shorter, and then you can have "I can have the propensity to be short-tempered with people around me, and I can also be quick to com- uh, complain about others in light of my problems. My life is going bad because of-hm, because you did this, and they did that, and That's just human behavior. It comes so easy, so naturally for us. James knows that. He struggled with it. It was going on. It needed to stop. It was dividing the church. It was undermining the unity of the church. It rose to such a level that it was noticeable. It it marred their reputation. James was getting feedback on it. It was so bad that there were people complaining about, whining about other believers and even the leadership in these local churches. And again, I've said this repeatedly because it's the theme of chapters 3, 4, and 5 in James. One of the easiest, quickest, best ways for Satan to destroy a church or divide a church or undermine a church is to get the believers in the church to undermine the leadership of the church through slandering, complaining, whining, back-talking. That's how Satan operates. That's why James keeps addressing this issue. This needs to cease and desist. It's kind of interesting... Almost throughout this entire epistle of five chapters, James has all these commands. Do this and prohibitions. Don't do this, Christian. Don't do this, Christian. And one thing that James is not talking about are are things like immorality. He's not saying don't steal, don't lie, don't commit immorality. It's All of his prohibitions and commands, many of them have to do with about preserving unity in the church and in personal relationships. That's kind of interesting. Because when you undermine the unity in the body of Christ, that sin is just as severe, if not more so, than somebody committing some immorality. Because this affects the entire body of Christ in a very dangerous, cancerous manner. And so going back to verse 9, do not complain. Because when life is hard, we want to complain, don't we? We do. Whine, 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 complain, complain, complain. It's his fault, their fault, church's fault their their fault my spouse's fault my kids' fault do not complain brothers and sisters in Christ against one another stop it and he doesn't elaborate on he just says don't do it stop it it's wrong it's sinful so acknowledge it repent of it confess it resist it become accountable against it do not complain this is basic um I used to be a children's pastor and a teacher of children, 10 plus years. And when I was a PE teacher or even just in the classroom, I had few rules. But one of the rules I had with kids was the Philippians 2.14 rule. So go to Philippians 2.14. Because a natural propensity of children, young children, and, and teenagers, and college students, and career people, and people that are married, and older people, is to be whiners and complainers. So I had the Philippians 2.14 rule. So we'd be out playing floor hockey in the gym during P.E., and they knew McManus's just few rules. Was, uh, don't trip, don't hit other kids in the face with the hockey stick, don't bite, and don't violate Philippians 2.14. That was it. And for every one of those infractions, if you broke one of those four rules, you would go into the penalty box for a minute and 60 seconds, or a minute and 30 seconds. You had to count out loud. And you're done, you can come back in. So you had to go in the penalty box for being a whiner or complainer in PE class with me. And uh, here Paul says, Do all things. Talking to Christians, do all things. Do all things. Do everything. Do all what does that mean? Does that include my job that's really hard and I don't like it and I don't like my boss and I don't like my coworkers and they're really unfair and they're not Christians and they all cuss and they're un, and they cheat and all this other stuff and they have unrealistic ungodly demands and it's arduous and it's boring. Does that does that count there well it says do all things. Do all things everywhere without grumbling or disputing. One translation do all things without grumbling and complaining. So there's the command. Don't do it. If you're a Christian, you shouldn't be doing this. Do not complain at home with your parents when they ask you to take out the trash. Why do they even have to ask you to take out the trash anyway? You should just be doing it. Yeah, amen. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Brush your teeth. Come on. Do all things without grumbling or disputing or complaining. So there's the command. Well, why is this so basic in terms of a way of life for a Christian? That's the next verse. In order that, for the purpose of, because, so that, You may prove yourselves. You may prove to be who you claim to be to those who are watching. Well, what is that? Don't be a whiner and complainer in order that you might prove yourself to be blameless. Not sinless. Blameless meaning a holy person forgiven by God. You have a relationship with Almighty God through Jesus Christ. You're a Christian. You're different. You need to live differently. Don't be a whiner and complainer in order that you may prove yourself and show to the world and everybody around you that you are blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in a perverse and crooked generation and world. He's saying that is that is typical of the world. That is typical of unbelievers to live their life continually moaning, groaning, complaining, discontent, dissatisfied. And Paul's saying that should not ever come out of the mouth of the Christian because you're you're different. You're a child of the king. So live accordingly. Isn't that a great challenge? So I'm going to challenge all of us, including me. Those of us who are Christians, try to leave the church campus, over to the fellowship meal if you're going there, driving home, that's going to be a challenge. In light of all those other bad people on the road, make it home and just try to survive the day before dinner without complaining or whining. And pray. You know, I just pray that the Spirit of God convicts us and stops us in our tracks. By the way, what's the opposite of complaining? Giving thanks and praise, isn't it? Giving thanks. Giving thanks to God. And 1 Thessalonians 5 says this, In everything, give thanks. In everything, give thanks. That's for the Christian. That is a command. That is not an option. It is an obligation. Living continually with an attitude and a life and words of praise and thanksgiving to Almighty God. In everything, give thanks. Why? For this is the will of God for you, for me, in Christ Jesus. I want to live in the will of God. What's the will of God? Well, one thing that's true about the will of God is you need to be giving thanks in everything no matter what's going on in your life and not be complaining. And when you start complaining, moaning, and groaning, you're being sinful. You're not giving thanks to God. You've lost your focus. You are now not, not in the will of God, and that's a dangerous place to be. You're now susceptible to Satan, his attacks, and everything else. You want to be under the umbrella of safety and protection? The umbrella of safety and protection for the Christian is the will of God. And one of those key things that hangs and holds up the banner of God's protection of safety and the will of God is having a thankful heart and a thankful attitude. That means thankful words. Don't grumble and complain. I'm not going to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul's telling the Corinthians, you know, don't be immoral and also don't complain. And then he reminds them, you remember what God did? to the Israelites uh, in the desert when they started complaining about the food. I am sick and tired of this uh, quail and this manna. God, I want to go back to Egypt. I want to go back into slavery. I want to go back to working 17 hours a day with no water. I want to go back to being brutalized because at least uh, I could have dry oatmeal. I'm tired of this food. And and God got angry by their complaining and says He killed thousands of them on the spot. Earthquake, that's how much God hates complaining. And then in Numbers chapter 12, Moses is leading two million people, trying the best that he can, trying to be obedient to God. And then his right hand man, his older brother, I mean his brother, Aaron, and then his older sister, Miriam, they start complaining about Moses, their brother. Well, why does he get to be in charge? Well, why does he get to go on the mountain and talk to God? Why does he get all the privileges? Hey, I'm his older sister. I changed his diapers. I don't know if she said that, but anyway, I don't know what she's complaining about, but Miriam and Aaron were complaining about Moses. God got furious. And he went, and instantaneously he gave Miriam leprosy. And she became like Snow White, and she had seven days to live. Then she was going to die. And then Moses intervened, and he prayed on behalf of his sister, God, be merciful. She deserves it. But be merciful. Show her grace. God answered the prayer and healed Miriam. But the point is, God, he hates grumbling and complaining. He hates it with a passion. We need to be thankful. That's why the book of Lamentation says, uh, okay, sinner, in light of all your sin, none of us has legitimacy to ever complain about anything. Ever. In light of all of our forgiveness that God has given us, in light of what we truly deserve. So that's, that's an important part of the Christian worldview. So let's go back to James. That simple little command. Be patient. And when life is hard, don't blame others. Don't complain. Don't be discontent. Don't create disunity in the church. Don't complain against one another in order that uh, you yourselves may not be judged. By the way, when you start complaining, you're usually complaining about another person. If you're complaining about your job, you're actually complaining about the people at your job, aren't you? Or the work they've given you to do in your church. You're complaining about somebody. You're complaining about a. You can always trace a complaint back to a person who has made your life inconvenient. What are you doing then when you're complaining about another person? You are taking and assuming the role of a judge. James has already talked about this. And he said there's one judge. His name is Jesus. You have usurped His role. And boy, you don't want to go there because if you want to be the judge maker, then God is going to raise the standard by which He is going to judge you and man, it ain't going to be pretty. Judge ye not lest ye be judged. That's the right context for Matthew 7. 1 that we want to quote so frequently. Don't do it. Verse 9, don't do it. Don't complain and judge other people in order that you yourselves may not be judged at a higher standard by God. Behold, there's only one judge. He's stand at the door and he's watching everything we do. Don't complain because there's the judge and he's watching everything we do. He sees every complaint. He's grieved by it. And Christians can actually lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ according to 2 Corinthians 5.10. We're going to be evaluated for everything we did in this life as a Christian. Everything. Even every word that comes out of our mouth. And God's going to take a blowtorch to it and it's going to be rewarded with either silver and gold and beautiful, precious, eternal rewards in heaven or a loss thereof, privileges in heaven. So be patient in light of the prohibition when God said, do not complain against others because of the hardships in your life and in my life. Point number three, which is verse 10 and 11. So after be patient in light of God's parousia and be patient in light of God's prohibition, the third one is be patient in light of God's prophets. Excuse me. We have the uh, illustration of the farmer who's patient. Now he says this in verse 10 and 11. Now as an example brethren of suffering being uh, having a long fuse and being patient take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Take consider the prophets. Consider the Old Testament. Consider Everything you know about the Old Testament and all you've read and how you know those Old Testament books, all 39 of them so well, and all those prophets and all the details of Obadiah. Surely you could tell me everything you know about Obadiah and Elijah and Micah and Jonah and Nahum and all those prophets and some of them we don't even know who they are and can't spell their names. What I'm trying to point out here in verse 10, James was talking to Jewish believers. They didn't have television and computers and all this other stuff that wastes our time. So one of the things that they spent most of their time doing was reading their Old Testament scriptures, and they knew it from Genesis to Malachi pretty good inside and out. So they knew the stories of the prophets. They weren't consumed with all this other stuff, uh, which is kind of a rebuke to us as a Christian community for the most part because we don't know the Old Testament very well, do we? It's almost embarrassing. So this is a good reminder for us, man. We need to be in God's Word. We need to know the Old Testament. We need to know the stories of the prophets uh, because they are an example for us that are supposed to encourage us. These were incredible women and men of God. Deborah was a prophet and a judge. And we need to learn from their example. And you know what? They were not made of marble. They didn't live on easy street. Many of these prophets were tortured, endured hardships, Some of them were persecuted, thrown in prison, beaten. Some were killed. That was the life of a prophet. That's why Jesus, you know, he kept talking to those Pharisees who hated his guts, and he said, "You did the very same thing to the prophets. You killed the prophets, rejected the prophets, persecuted the prophets, just like you want to do to me." And so that's what James is talking about. These, this long line, this great legacy of prophets from the Old Testament, who had it hard. So when if you have time on your own, read Hebrews 11 and it will chronicle all these wonderful faithful prophets of God, Samuel and David and Isaiah and all these others and their hardships and some were murdered and saw asunder and cut in two and yet they remained faithful to God. If we think we've got it hard, we really haven't seen much in light of what they suffered. Not just the prophets, I think of the apostles as well. But... Uh, My son and I were studying Matthew 10 for a project he has in school. and It's the calling of the twelve apostles where Jesus calls them after praying and He appoints them as apostles. His sent ones. Man, I'm thinking, wow, that would be exciting. Can you imagine being one of the twelve apostles called and commissioned by Jesus Himself as one of the apostles out of all those thousands of disciples that He had? He chose you to be His sent one, an apostle? Man, I wish I could have been there. Right next to John, or James, or Peter. That's Matthew chapter 10, 1-15. to 15. And then you read the next 20 verses, and he says, okay, now that you're on my, my apostles, I'm going to send you out. Oh, right on. And here's what's going to happen. They're going to hate you. They're going to reject you. They're going to spit on you. They're going to arrest you. They're going to kill some of you. Oh, uh, I don't want to sign up anymore. And then you go on to chapter 11, and it talks about John the Baptist, who was also a sent one of Jesus, and his head got cut off. Wow, that's a reality. If you got, uh, you know, if you were not an, a believer, you would have hardships in life. And then when you become a Christian, those hardships just will mount and compound themselves because the world hates Jesus. That's what Jesus said in John seven. The world hates me, and as I send you out, the world will also hate you so if you came to me and said I've got hardships in life life is hard life is torturous life is tiring life is discouraging I'd say amen preach it brother sister you were called not only to believe on him but also to suffer for his sake Philippians 129 right promises from the Bible Timothy says the same thing we're gonna have hardships in life so but we need to be persevering looking to God look in light of his coming Crying out to Him, depending upon Him, and at the same time having a resolve to strengthen our own hearts with biblical truth as we take it in, as we get on our knees, we pray to God and ask for His help and ask for His mercy, surround ourselves with fellow believers to be encouraged, to be filled up, to be protected by the church. That's how you persevere and make it in this life. Assimilating all the blessings that God has given us to fill up our arsenal to make it through this life. And we need to consider the example of the Old Testament prophets because they are exemplary for us. Not only the prophets of the Old Testament, verse 11, behold, we count those uh, blessed who endured these prophets. And you've heard of the endurance of Job. Go read Job, 42 chapters. Very few people had a more difficult life than Job. And, you know, it does say, you know, Job had his faults. He wasn't perfect. He was sinful. But Job, he didn't sin with his mouth throughout all these hardships. He questioned. He doubted, he grieved, he cried, he sobbed, he felt pain. But he never listened to the foolish words of his wife when she said curse God and die. He wasn't going to curse God, his Maker. He trusted his Maker ultimately, despite his other sins. So that's one thing Job could be commended for was enduring. It was amazing. The death of ten of his children, losing everything that was precious to him, and yet he didn't curse God. Are you angry at God about anything? I I can't even. I've got my weaknesses, and I've got a lot of them. But I guess it's because of the way I got saved and when I got saved in my life. Living a pagan life for like 19 years and then getting saved so dramatically. The 25, 6 years of being a Christian, I've never been mad at God. But I hear Christians at times say they're mad at God. I just, I can't even relate to that. Have I ever doubted God? Yes. Have I ever really doubted God and thought that well maybe God doesn't even exist? I've actually done that as a Christian. So I just struggle in different ways. But there are Christians actually who struggle with getting angry at God. You can't do that. If you ever find yourself in that position, you have got to ask the Holy Spirit to soften your heart. Soften your heart. He cares for you. You are a child of God. Whatever your problems are, do not blame them on God. Blame them. I mean, Satan is real. His devils are real. Your sin is real. This fallen world is real. There are so many other things that trip us up, blind us, and deceive us. Don't blame God. And Job never did that. He never did that. That's why he is to be commended. That's why he's exemplary. That's why he stands out. You can read some of the Psalms, and some of the Psalmists are angry at God. They're believers. They're struggling. But James says, no, consider Job. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. Man, look, you've seen the outcome. What was the outcome? That's chapter uh, 42. Ten of his children were killed. God replenished and gave him ten more new children. And every all the riches that he lost was replenished multiple times over at the end of his life. Then the biggest reward of all, he died and he went to heaven. And now He is in glory. So Job endured. We need to do the same. We need to do it with God's help and with our own resolve and the power of the Holy Spirit and in light of biblical truth. And at the end of verse 11, you've seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and He is merciful. There it is. See? If you know Jesus Christ, you've been adopted into God's family. You've been transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. You're a child and daughter of God. He loves you. He cares for you. He cares for me. He's given you His indwelling Spirit. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows every detail. He cares about it more than you do, more than I do, more than anybody around you. And we can trust Him. He is compassionate. He feels, that word compassion is a Greek word, and it means to hurt in your gut. This is an anthropomorphic term describing that God hurts in His gut the hardships going on in your life he literally does he's compassionate and he always acts on his compassion he cares he's going to be gracious he's going to be merciful and we need to just continue to lean on his mercy god help me i need your help be merciful be compassionate i'm struggling i need your help we need to pray and talk more and you know what god will answer that prayer That's our great God. Be patient in light of God's prophets who are that great model for us. Let's go ahead and pray to this great, merciful, patient, loving, heavenly Father who cares for His children. Father, we do thank You for our time together and this passage that is pastoral, that is a a concern James was concerned for his people. You are concerned for us. You care about the details of our life. You care about our trials, our struggles, things that cause us to grieve. You want to be merciful. You, we know you're compassionate. And you want to help. Father, help us by stirring up the Spirit of God that is in us to confess sin that may be Undermining our our peace and joy and right attitudes, whether it's complaining about other people and blame shifting or wrong thinking about You, being angry with You, God. God, forgive us. Change our hearts. Soften us. Humble us. Give us Your mercy and allow us to see Your mercy in real ways in our life, even starting today. And God, empower us once again, reminding us from The commands in this passage, to be patient and long-suffering in light of Christ's return. Lord Jesus, we pray, Maranatha, we pray that You would come and come quickly. We desire to be with You. God, help us to not be complainers, to not be sinful, violating Your Word, but to be thankful people, loving and patient people, so that we're going to stand out as lights in this dark, perverse world. And we pray all this for Your glory. In Christ's name, Amen.